welcome to Three at the Back, the Football Analytics Podcast from Opta Pro. I'm Ryan Barr and I'll be your host for this episode. Today we've got a Three at the Back debutant as uh, Lee Jameson, MD of Scout7, joins us. Many will know Lee from either directly or through Scout7, a company that uh, Lee founded in 2001. We'll go on to speak a bit more about Scout7 shortly, but for those not aware, Scout7 is now part of Opta Pro through a recent Perform Group acquisition. We'll certainly touch on that during today's episode, but we'll also go beyond that looking at different approaches to scouting, both in regards to club processes, cultures, uh, different levels of competition, and we'll look at that on a global scale. Lee, welcome to Three at the Back. Thanks, Ryan. Great to have you uh, with us, and uh, excited about your Three at the Back debut. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. And alongside Lee is our Three at the Back regular and head of Opta Pro, Ben McCreel. Hello, Ben. Hi, Ryan. I'm glad you used regular and not veteran. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Looks can be deceiving. Well, yeah. <laughs> so you are just back from a trip to see True Media on the cricket side, is that right? Yeah, we've got some exciting plans for uh, developing the Optipro cricket business um, and we'll certainly do a podcast, I think, at some point to kind of go into more detail about that. But yeah, we're excited by the plans that we have with the guys at True Media. Uh, had a good few days with them, teaching the, the Americans about cricket, so that was, that was entertaining. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was good. Good stuff. So, Lee, to start, would you um, can you give us a brief over a brief overview of, uh, of Scout Seven and its sort of its foothold within professional football and where it stands? Of course. Okay. So, uh, back in 2000, I mean, all this seems like a, a million years ago now. But I was working for a software company in the insurance industry, and and, and part of my role there was to evaluate uh, the massive impact that the internet would have on business. You know, the internet was on its way; it was changing everything, and this was at the end of the dot-com boom. It was a time where most businesses would have a modem sat in a corner, squealing away, but it was going to make a massive impact on on, on, on industry and, and, and commerce. And my sport is football, and, and, and through this research, I then began to wonder around this time how the football industry worked and how would the internet affect the football industry? How would how would the global game of football change because the internet was coming along? And at the time, there was a, there was a healthy and a growing international transfer market, and I guess it was these questions and, and, and this interest that I was taking through through the role that I had in, in the insurance business that, that spawned the idea for Scout Seven. And Scout Seven was a very simple idea. Uh, to broad to broadly speaking, it was to provide a, a secure online environment for clubs to confidentially store and manage their scouting reports, their opposition assessment reports, their recruitment targets, target lists, and so on. This was all done with a view to embracing each club's individual structure, their workflow, their processes for recruitment. And all centred around, you know, what 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 is what was then and still is the biggest core global football biographical database. We built the first prototype to Scout Seven uh, for a Scout Seven system in late 2000, uh, formally launching the business early in 2001, uh, and then on the 13th of April 2001, and I'll never forget the date for obvious reasons, where we signed our first client, which was West Bromwich Albion. Uh, which was fantastic in one way, but in another way a bit of a disappointment because I'm, I'm an Aston Villa supporter. But anyway, Albion became our first client in, 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 in April 2001 and they're still clients today. Um, Villa became our second client shortly after that in October of 2001 and we were shortly followed by Liverpool and, and Manchester United. So you know, within, a, within I guess a two-year period, having had the initial idea for Scout7 uh, uh, and the business working in football, being an internet online-based Information management system. We managed to secure, you know, four at the time Premier League clubs. So, do you think? Sorry to interrupt. There, That's think, okay. Did your tech tech background, business background, do you think that gave you a set of fresh eyes in football that perhaps weren't already there, and with the skills from the tech background as well? Definitely, uh, without a doubt. I, th- I think you know. I, th- I mean, I've learned a lot more about football, and uh, indeed, as we all do, we're all still learning every day about how the football industry works. But I think when you work within a club, when, when you work within an industry, you don't necessarily see everything that's going on. You, you are literally too close to, to the emotion, the noise and so on. So me working in a completely different environment yeah, gave me the bandwidth to, to actually recognise, you know, hang on, something we could do something here. There's a real opportunity. You know, football was very traditional in how scouting was, was undertaken and, and you know, it was, uh, it was a natural um, opportunity that, that sort of lay in front of us with the internet becoming... Uh, it becoming what it was. Um, so, I mean, bringing, bringing it forward to today, I mean, we're now working with 200, around 250 professional clubs and associations in 25 international markets. With approaching 3,000 professional football staff within those clients use, using our systems. Uh, I, I, truth be told, I could honestly write a book about, uh, you know, Scouts and Journey over the past 17 years. You know, the football market really 
has changed hugely over that time and, and, and every club has got its own story, it's got its own life cycle. They tend to reinvent themselves every three or four years, which I think we're all familiar with as, as supporters as much as anything else. And, and we as a business, we as Skate 7 have always had to remain very agile and very innovative to, to, to stay ahead, to stay ahead of that curve. You know, I'd like to say I'm discuss this with Ben. I think we were pioneers back in 2001. We're quite a humble group of people, but we were pioneers then. I'd like to think we're still pioneers now uh, and at the very forefront of the industry. And I think what's really interesting now is that you know we're seen as consultants to clubs uh, as much as we are seen as suppliers, which I guess is something that we've gained from the experience and the trust that we've earned over such a long period of time. And for me now, and for the, for the team at Scout7, this, this next chapter together with Pro is something that all of us are hugely, hugely excited about. And do you think, do you think clubs still are and have done taking comfort from that, from that technological aspect that you guys bring to the table that perhaps can't be generated in-house from a club? Absolutely, I, absolutely. I could, uh, part of, I'd probably have a chapter in that book about clubs trying to do it themselves. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, probably, probably a little bit over the top, but I liken it to them manufacturing their own kit or manufacturing their own boots. They wouldn't do that. You know, people move from job to job, and I think that when you have people internally who have a project, such as developing technology, it's easy for them to jump and move on to something else. And they leave behind a legacy, which is very difficult for new people to pick up. So, you know, we've always said that, look, you know, we're a technology specialist. We, we do a lot more than that now. You know, we, we do consult on, on, on a number of other matters with, with, with a number of clients. But we are fundamentally a technology business, and, and that's what we specialise in. And that's why, you know, I think we've, we've developed so many strong partnerships throughout world football now. Good stuff. And I look forward to reading that book. Um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to a signed copy <laughs> landing on my desk at some point. Birmingham Waterstones. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, It'll be so, in Villa Park, surely. <laughs> <laughs> so before, before we, we talk a bit more about recruitment, which is what we're going we're gonna to focus on in this first part of the episode, Ben, could you just give us a brief overview of sort of what we can expect from, uh, from this partnership? Yeah, I mean, I'm incredibly excited about this kind of new chapter for both OptiPro and Scout7. You know, OptiPro have been partners of, of Scout7 since 2009, something yeah, like that. Um, so, you know, that predated OptiPro's existence. Um, so, you know, the, the relationship goes back a long way. I was a client of Scout7s for 10 years in clubs. Uh, every club I worked for, we used the Scout7 systems. So I've known the guys a long time. And, you know, we, we started talking about this in sort of November last year. So it's been a long process for all of us. Um, and, you know, we've been discussing the future together for, for over a year now. And, and obviously only in the last few weeks have we been able to make that public. But I think what excites me about OptiPro and Scout7 now being under one roof and, and being one team is that the innovative minds that, that Lee talks about in Scout7 is certainly aligns well with the guys that we've got here. But it all comes down to having the relationships with the clubs and having that uh, ability to talk to them and, and have that feedback from clubs uh, to develop, whether it's uh, the ISF system or whether it's something like ProVision or, or our data, in a way that helps service the clubs in, in a better way. You know, we develop ProVision initially just out of my frustrations from the products and, and things that I'd been using for, for a number of years and you know frustrations that have been shared by many colleagues in, in the game over a number of years. Uh, and I think that's something that you know we can bring a fresh approach to the ISF now. We can have a fresh look at it um, and we can have a think about how the integrations of, of OptiData into the ISF will help grow the capability that that platform has. You know, the ISF is a fundamental platform for all of those 200 and something clubs that, that Scout7 have been working with for a number of years. Um, it's a system that many scouts, uh, directors of football, even chief execs, managers are so familiar with. And, you know, in reality, probably more familiar and comfortable with that than they maybe are with our data. You know, we have huge challenges still in bringing our data and our platforms to the to the point where they become that phrase tactically relevant, something that they can apply to their everyday football working lives um, and actually impact performance. And that's still a massive challenge that we have. Whereas I think the ISF and, and the platform that, that that brings to scouting departments and recruitment departments in managing their scouts, writing scouting reports, being able to house that and database that against players, 
Uh, and really being able to structure your whole process around a platform like that um, has been hugely beneficial to the, the industry for the last you know, 10, 15 years. And I think you know, we only hope to, to take that to another level. Um, one of the things that we've challenged all of our guys um, now is, as part of a whole OptiPro team um, is that we want to be continue to be innovative and creative, uh, but also be very ambitious about where we can take the technology. You know, the football world is gradually getting to the point where we're introducing things like goal line technology into the game, which shows that you know finally football is is grasping that uh, the need for technology. But actually, you know, within every football club, they've been comfortable with technology for for a long time, and we both know from our um, both sides of the business that we're constantly challenged by those clubs in the way that they want to use technology and they want to use data. Uh, and we need to get ahead of that. You know, we need to not be reactive to um, the needs of clubs because understandably they are frustrated at times by the speed that it takes to develop certain things within platforms or, uh, and that's through necessity and that's through, you know, need. But what I'm challenging all of our guys to do now is to try and get ahead of that and to think bigger and to think that with the resources that you know, we hopefully have now as, as one group, um, that we can really challenge that and move that forward. So I think you know, what I hope cl the clubs will see over the next six to 12 months is uh, the development of, of our platforms in a way that only continues to service them in, in, in the way they need to. Um, so yeah, as I said, I'm, I'm very excited, I'm very relieved to be able to actually talk about this now after over 12 months of legal and financial processes. It's, it's really nice to talk about uh, what we're actually here to do now, which is to, um, to take that big step. And, you know, I think the thing I would say is that we know that we haven't achieved anything yet. Um, we've made this announcement. We've been talking about it for over a year, but we haven't achieved anything. We've got to prove um, to the whole of the football industry. Um, and, you know, the one thing to say is that this, this uh, process is not limited to football. Uh, we're very much looking at a multi-sport strategy as we always do with OptiPro. So I'm excited by what we can do with all of this technology um, in all of those sports. A couple of things there, Ben, I think you're spot on. Um, I mean, the ISF, which you refer to, is the Intelligent Sports Framework. And it was called that because intentionally we know there's an opportunity to take that tool into other sports as well. It's certainly not football generic. And the other thing, again, talking about the two companies coming together, which I think is, you know, which is fundamental in all of this, is when, when two businesses have a partnership, something I've learned you know, over the years with, with all of this, you have a partnership and you work as closely together as possible, but you're still two individual companies and you've yeah. got your own agenda, mm -hmm. you've got your own you know, um, process, your own business plan, if you like. Now it's, it, it, we're together, the agenda's together, yeah. and that's what this is all about, and this is why we can talk as, uh, with as much excitement and confidence yeah. as, as, as we can about everything moving forward. Yeah, and that's that's a really good point. I mean, we, you know, as a, I think everybody is aware that the OptiPro and Scout 7 have worked closely for a number of years, but Lee's absolutely right, unfortunately, and this, again, is a, often a frustration of clubs, is that, you know, things maybe don't happen as quickly as they, as they need it to or want it to because... Um, you know, there is unfortunately a business agenda as well, and, and there is two uh, companies trying to achieve certain things. We're hoping that that is now eradicated because, you know, we feel like OptiPro, certainly in the UK, and Scout7 have become fundamental parts of what clubs do, um, certainly in the Premier League and the Championship. Um, but, you know, Scout7 have a huge presence in the lower leagues as well. Um, and, you know, we're hoping that being under one roof and being one team is going to allow us to support clubs in a way that maybe we haven't been able to do before. And, you know, we're, we're incredibly excited, but we, as I said, we know there's a lot of work to do and we know that uh, we've got a lot to do to achieve the, the kind of goals that we've set for ourselves. So. Good stuff. I think that's, yeah, really exciting. I think, as you said, the idea of having those relationships where the feedback from clubs in terms of challenges, what they can do, what they can't do, what they'd like it, data, they like the technology, what they'd like these solutions to be able to do is gold dust to us. So, um, yeah. and yeah, in a case of getting sort of bringing in new ideas, new concepts, I think will be really valuable and exciting over the next uh, next 12 months and beyond there. So we're going to look at recruitment as our sort of main topic for this first part. And 
it's something we've we've explored before in this podcast, particularly from the data side of things, looking at the process of identifying players, comparisons against old uh, against um, existing squad members, and looking at all different elements and sort of bringing that together. So what we're going to do now is sort of bring in and a bit more emphasis on the subjective side and how that how that operates, how and where that sits alongside the um, the more objective side in terms of the, the data. So um, Lee, could you could you start by talking to us a bit about that in terms of how um, how this side of things would, would play into a recruitment process. Certainly, okay. I, I guess the first the first thing to say, and I, I don't want to state the obvious here, and I know you've, you've covered so much in, in your podcast over the past, which I, I think is absolutely fantastic, and you know it's an honour for me to be involved in this, if, I, if I'm honest with you. But but it, every football club is different. You know, this is a, a fundamental. Every football club is different, whether it's the budget, whether it's the process, whether it's the noise, whether it's where, where they, whether they're being um, stable or unstable or overperforming, underperforming. It's, it's a real conundrum. It really is a conundrum. And even today, you know, every single one of those 20 Premier League clubs, if I can talk about them specifically, is different in how, how they work, how they function. And Scout 7, and, and this, is, this is almost the yin and the yang here, you guys being, you guys as, as OptiPro as was before we came along, being the very data-oriented and, and Scout 7 being very subjective and, and, and not objective like the data is, but more subjective. This is where, how I'm sort of coming into this. Those 20 clubs are different. And they've all got different reporting mechanisms, subjective reporting mechanisms. They've got different reporting templates. And if you strip all of that back at a fundamental level, those reports, those subjective scouting reports, a scout going out to a game, making notes, we've all seen them now, they'll, they'll typically draw on the back of the, the team sheet, the, the formations, they'll put it in the head most of the time and they'll go home and they'll, they'll write the reports up when they get home. That typically is what happens. But they'll all have different templates to work to. And some of the templates are very basic and some are very sophisticated and there's everything in between. But actually, if you, if, you, if you strip it back, those subjective reports could actually be quite objective. So if you're talking about a defender and how, he, how he's tackling, whether he's strong on the left, strong on the right, whether he's good in the air, whether he's, he's powerful, when you talk about individual players, you can actually write that and give it a number. And this is what we've sort of seen emerge. It sounds quite basic, but you'll be surprised at the number of clubs who don't work this way with their subjective reporting. So you do a report, you do a subjective report, and you assign a number to a particular attribute. Once you start to collate that information on a, on a, on a quantitative basis, you start to get some very, very powerful information, which is driven by the subjective scouting report. And those, those rankings, would they, um, obviously they, they, come from, they come from an individual, and there'd be pre-agreed criteria, I take it, in terms of across the club, what sort of, you know, this person's made out of 10 if they're doing this, but not this, yeah, exactly. for example. Exactly. And, and, and every reporting template I've ever seen is different. You know, they're all different, and some of them have go into a great deal of detail, and others don't. And you can have a particular reporting template if you're looking for certain types of players. You know, strikers will have a different list of attributes that you're looking for to centre-halves. And in terms of when this process starts, would they... Would it be a case, perhaps, of looking at identifying a shortlist, a long list, through data, and then bringing in watching with the eye, or does it happen side by side? How, would, uh, how have you found that in your experience? Well, another, another part of the conundrum is certain clubs are reactive and certain clubs are proactive. And from a proactive side, when they use the data well, when they network well, when, they've got, when they're well-resourced and they're looking at the key recruitment markets, they're on the front foot. They'll be looking, there'll be a particular, particular methodology for them to be looking at a certain group of players that, that meet certain sets of criteria. There's also the reactive side of the market where you've got clubs who, who effect, effectively work with agents to a great degree and, and they're more reactive to an agent picking up the phone saying, we've got a player for you, he's a great player, you need to go and have a look at him if you haven't already. And you know, those, again, this is part of that conundrum in terms of where clubs are on, 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 in terms of their, their structure and their process and they're all very different. I think one of the things that I find really interesting when managers change and uh, there is a change changes at a football club is that the media focuses on things like playing style and um, the change of approach that a manager might take and certainly if there's multiple changes at the club you know from um, uh, you know there's been two managers in a season or three managers in a season at times you know the, the focus is obviously on what happens on the pitch but actually one of the the most fundamentally difficult things that happen in a football club when a manager changes is the recruitment process. Uh, I think the majority of managers or coaches or um, even chief execs would tell you that 
the most fundamental part of a football club is the recruitment department. Um, because without recruiting the right players for your manager, you aren't going to succeed. Um, and I think one of the things that we've noticed over the last probably two years or so has been that in the past it always used to be the manager gets sacked, he goes, new manager comes in. Then it became the manager, the assistant manager and the first team coach and they would all go at the same time. Now it's those three plus maybe the head of sports science, maybe the director of football goes with the analyst, with the head of recruitment possibly as well. Even a technical scout gets taken to another club if, if a manager goes for a positive reason, he's, he's hired by someone else. So the fundamental processes that happen within a football club on the recruitment side change drastically every time that happens. And one of the biggest challenges that clubs then have is trying to keep through the momentum of the season or the off-season even, even more fundamental of what do you do in the next window. And, you know, recruitment departments are working window to window. It'd be great if you could work 18 months ahead, but in reality, that very rarely happens because people aren't there for long enough. So you're generally working to the next window because you don't know if you're going to be there. And so one of the things that you know Lee talks about, the flexibility that, that scouting reports um, have and, and, and the variety that there is in, in the structure of those reports, that's the same for the process that happens within a club as well. And so those reports will change twice a season often so which means you know you're essentially assessing players in different ways every time a new manager comes in a new head of scouting comes in a new technical scout comes in you know they rip up the process they, they bring in the reports from their old club and the whole thing changes again and so you know you're asking the question about when you're doing more subjective um, analysis uh, using you know general scouting yeah. But actually, you want to put some some kind of data in there as well. I mean, it's something that, that I certainly was involved a lot in in the clubs I worked at, where we used within the scouting report, we had the ability for the scouts to, to put numbers against certain attributes. But one of the biggest challenges is, you know, conforming that to some sort of set process. You know, one guy looks at a player in one way, another guy sat next to him in the same game can see something different. We know that from football fans. You know, fans watch it, it's, it's almost the same as scouts. You think it would be uniform in some way, but they're all looking at different attributes, and that's either based on previous experience or it might be based on um, the manager that they're looking for. They may see an attribute in a player that isn't relevant to the guy he's sat next to who's watching the same player. Um, so those types of things are really challenging to get scouts to see things in the same way and then evaluate players in the same way. So I've got a question here, and it's, it's open to you both. So with the obvious sort of short-term nature of appreciating there's a sort of two to three-year span of manager, maybe less, and that team he takes with him. You'd be very optimistic with two or three years. <laughs> I think my managers will. Yeah, yeah, um, would you say there's a benefit in a club almost bringing, potentially bringing someone who's away from that process, who is not immersed in it, coming in and almost setting up that process and looking at long-term, saying this is what we can do? I think every club wants to achieve that. Yeah. You know, everybody, every club... You know, I, I've been at clubs where we've said, okay, it doesn't matter what who the manager is. We're going to have the same process. We're going to have the same scouting approach. We're going to have the same recruitment process. We're going to be aware that the style of play might change, that the um, types of players we're recruiting might change, but the whole process is going to stay the same. But in reality, manager gets sacked. You need somebody to come in. Generally, if a manager gets sacked, it's because you're underperforming. Yeah. So you've got to bring somebody in that is going to improve performance. Now, generally, there's a few cases, there's a few head coaches in the Premier League now, but in general, they're all managers still, and they want to manage everything. So they want to manage the scouting process. They want to recruit the players that they want, which means it's almost impossible for clubs to say, it doesn't matter who the coach is, we are going to do our process in the same way. Yeah, everybody looks at Southampton and says Southampton have been the club that have probably achieved that the best, but even they're going through some challenges at the moment uh, with the manager situations that they've had over the past year or so. So that's a very idyllic Typical, yeah, a, yeah. A, a way of looking at things, and it'd be great to be involved in that if that really happened. But in reality, you know, that's unless you're Barcelona, where mm. you've had a certain approach to the game for, forever. 
and you're always going to recruit the same type of players. We, we might get onto this a bit further down the line. And again, you're right, you're right, absolutely right, Ben. I mean, he's a real. I'm going to use a conundrum again. I do apologise. I mean, Michael Calvin's book, The Nowhere Men. Yeah. You know, it's a fantastic book, and it's the best insight into the into the sport without a day into, into scouting within football. And, and you know a lot of a lot of what we're touching upon here, he, he's talked about in that book. Um, but I can safely say that there are certain clubs in Germany and Holland, um, in particular where we where we've worked for, for for many years, where there is still the head coaches have changed many times, yeah. but there's still the same group of people, the same plan, you know, and that they take on board everything you say, Ben, in terms of we're going to have a rocky time, we're going to have good times, we're going to, the plan is the plan. We stop this cycle of reinvention. And those clubs have done it successfully, and they compete, and they're well run, and and you know, but there are very few clubs over here that you can that you can put that tag on. So an example, example, a great example of that is that Scout Seven uh, over the I don't know how long they've been doing this, but a couple of times a year they release a document that has the out of contract players yeah. list. So this is a you know it's almost like Christmas for for clubs. You know you're waiting for. For the yeah. day that this gets released, and you're hounding the guys at Scout Seven to get that document and get it sent to you as soon as it's available. And as soon as it comes, it generally gets printed off, and everybody in the scouting department and the director of football and the manager will sit there and go through it and highlight Fresh the players. Yeah, already, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And that process happens in every football club in the country, without doubt, in probably most football clubs in Europe. But what generally happens. Within a few weeks of, of having reviewed that, you go back and, and you start looking and the German clubs and the Dutch clubs have already signed up all the best players yeah. that are out of contract exactly. and it's still only in March. And that is fundamentally what Lee's talking about there, is that those clubs have a process that is structured, it's generally the same people, they're all working to the same plan. And they're able to get ahead of their recruitment processes and sign players because they know that things aren't drastically going to change next season. Whereas most of the clubs in the Premier League and in the Championship, no matter whether you're a top six club or whether you're a bottom six club, you are not able to plan that far ahead because you don't know whether the manager's going to be there next season. And you know that if the manager changes, the whole system could, could potentially change. You don't know whether you're going to have a job because if you get relegated, they may have to cut you. So that's a, a, a massive challenge, uh, I think a cultural challenge we have in, in the UK football that probably doesn't exist as much in Europe as it does. I was, was going to go on to that side of things. So do you, these um, the sort of direct of the long-term plan process that we stick to, do you think that's that's unique and, and exclusive almost to, like, to those football cultures? Do you think it's something that can be, will be embedded in, in, different, in different territories? I, I, I hope so. I think it will only be for the benefit of those clubs ultimately that, 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 that stability in this cycle of reinvention is, is broken because they all reinvent themselves every two years or so and that is a really, really difficult thing for everybody involved in the game, let alone supporters who get frustrated with that situation. But there's, there's a lot of reasons behind that of course and I guess that's not for today but, but without doubt, you know, those, those again, there's an, uh, almost like a book session this is. The Soconomics book, which I think brought first brought this out, talking about the UK, were, and we don't just want to talk about the UK, obviously, but we are an island, and we work. We've actually, our mentality has been that of an island in so many ways when it comes to football and the culture of football clubs and and and, and how they how they're structured. The, yeah, I mean to answer your question, Ryan. Yeah, I, I, I hope that gradually, step by step, that, that there's an evolution in terms of club structure and they become more stable. You know, the number of good people in football I've known over the years who've been kicked out of a job when they've fundamentally done nothing wrong and they're very good at their job, but the club's pressed the red panic button because the, 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 the manager's gone or because they're in the relegation dogfight or whatever, and they're good people and they've been thrown out of the game. So you, you set up a club tomorrow in the UK, that club will have a sporting director almost yeah. Type position that without a doubt, without, without a doubt, without a doubt, you know, a high high portion of clubs now have people in those roles. Um, you know that they may not be called directors yeah. of football, yeah, um, exactly, yeah, but there is pretty much a director of football, sporting director. Um, I think we've talked about this on the on the podcast before. You know, there's a couple of chief execs in the Premier League who are essentially directors yeah. of football as well, um, who you know often have been there a long time. I think. 
the challenge is, um, you know, we talk about player turnover a lot and we talk about manager turnover a lot. I think the turnover underneath that in the, the you know, the performance side of a football club is as drastic as it is in the playing side. You know, we've talked in the past, I think, about how analysts have been valued historically. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's no surprise that analysts have generally been um, very paid very low. You know, they're generally coming out of university. It's a first job. Um, you know, I was one of those people. And, you know, the, the, the value of those guys is growing. Uh, and we've seen that in the fact they're being taken with managers to clubs. Um, so their value is increasing. The problem is that those guys generally see a kind of ladder. So they see that they want to go up into recruitment. And so they go into a technical scouting role, something I did. But that led to a lot of instability. You know, it led to me going to three or four other clubs because of relegations, because of financial difficulties at clubs or or me generally looking for other opportunities. And that happens a lot as well. So the turnover doesn't just happen through managers being sacked or changes in structure, but actually it comes from people doing what they do in every other industry in the world, which is they're looking for opportunities and they're looking for better opportunities. So being able to have a structured process doesn't just mean having somebody at the top. It means having people that can kind of fit into that process. Yeah. And that's one of the things that you know we're going to really look to be trying to achieve as OptiPro in, in the future is bringing everything together. So you know we're very aware that in every football club, there is people along the full spectrum from your subjective scouts, your coaches who are very much looking at the the game from a tactical perspective using their experience, um, you know, opinion on on players to the analytics community that, you know, that historically Opta Pros has been focused around um, with analysts, technical scouts, and then now, you know, the blogging community, the things we've done with the forum. And there is a huge spectrum there from one end to the other. But actually, at the majority of clubs now, there is a person at some stage along that spectrum throughout the club. So one of the things that, you know, as uh, Scout7 and as Opta Pro now, we want to be able to service and support people throughout that process and be able to help them understand data better. But actually, one of the challenges that, that I've always talked about in, you know, in the, the nearly two years that I've been at Opta Pro is getting the, the analytics community to better understand the game and better understand football and whether that's tactically or whether that's the process, whether that's why decisions are made in certain circumstances when you think other decisions should be made and you know both sides of that spectrum need to learn off each other at some clubs they do that fantastically well others it's a struggle uh, others decide to go one end or the other and we've seen that so i think you know we kind of sit in the middle here and we say you know we respect the reasons why clubs need to have both and they need to use both and what we need to do now is, is opt to pro is to find ways to get them to talk to each other uh, and to use the technology in a way that supports both sides. And I think that's only going to help the process in terms of setting up better systems within clubs around scouting and recruitment particularly in having that quantitative, qualitative approach where it's a, an even split. You're using both data and scouting information to make better decisions. And that's really what we're all trying to do is, is help clubs and for clubs themselves to be making smarter decisions around player recruitment which is only going to lead to more stability because at the end of the day if you make better decisions you have more success generally that leads to stability and that balanced approach is, is you know is absolutely right and i think that what we you know what we're conscious of throughout this is is, is helping the, the, the you know the staff within the clubs that we work with build their careers and get a great, greater understanding whether they as you say Ben whether they're from the analytic community whether they're from the scout community whether they're technical scouts who sort of sit in the middle of all of this you know developing those ideas we haven't got every we, we haven't got every answer you know I think one of the great things about football is nobody knows everything you know football is so subjective in so many ways yeah. and it's all full full of opinion and that's what makes it the beautiful game in my opinion it, yeah. it really is. Um, but but that whole mix of, of being able to bring the objective together with the subjective, the systems we provide, the systems that we develop individually with clubs or collectively, generically for all of our clients, 
and the people as well. You know, the, the, the people side of this is really important. And you know, I, I take great pleasure knowing that we as a business have, have brought scouts into the game. Um, we've, we've, we've developed systems with their support. They've moved on into better roles, and it's exactly the same now on the analyst side. You know, this is it's all about people ultimately. And, and you know, we we will certainly not be uh, ignorant to, to that side of things. You know. And in terms of people and, and people turnover, obviously we we're aware we're aware footballs have got a very fluid workforce. Uh, I suppose that's really really sort of common, really at stake. I suppose the further down the pyramid you go as well, where smaller teams, shorter term contracts, and everything along along those lines. So Scout Seven do a lot of work across the, all the tiers and down to down to the conference, national and north and south. I think yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I want to talk a bit about their unique challenges. Often we can fall into the trap of talking just at the top level, but understanding what's going on at that lower end of the uh, professional football scale and, and how, you, how you work with them. So we started working with the National League in the summer, uh, and this is very much a new journey for us. And uh, I mean, you're talking about clubs with such limited resources, obviously. Um, I, I know there are certain clubs that, that, where the chairman is actually acting, acting as the analyst. But what we've done in, in providing them them all with systems and uh, with the video in there and with the level of data in there is giving them the opportunity to to effectively you know do what larger clubs do now and that they've got the same facilities they've got that the, they can scout the opposition that's forthcoming they can recruit maybe in a more uh, a bro have a broader knowledge for the recruitment that they're doing um, but what it also does is it, it, it serves the ecosystem of English football in the sense that League One and League Two clubs can actually look at the National League market for players in a in a way that they've never been able to do before. Um, so, so yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, it's interesting. It's really interesting, you know, going into those clubs that are much, much smaller, much more challenging environments for them. Uh, and they do exactly the same thing that the Premier League clubs do. You know, they play football at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, you know, which is, which is great. So, so yeah, it, we've always wanted to have scalable solutions. We've always wanted to have solutions that, that, that can reach all ends of the market. And, 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 you know, what we're doing in the National League, as I say, is, is, a, is a first step. Excellent. And Ben, from, from your perspective, obviously, again, we speak a lot about the, uh, the top-end clubs, but that's not to say that teams lower down the football period aren't, aren't sort of dipping their toe in, aren't working with data or aren't comfortable in this space. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, as uh, opted data, we've only been able to go so far down the pyramid in terms of supporting clubs. You know, our tier 13 F24 data. So that's, that's all actions yeah. uh, all, and Every, all the location on the pitch. Yeah, exactly. So that data is only available down to the championship at the moment. We would love to be able to scale that down further and we certainly hope to be doing that over the next few years. But one of our challenges has been our ability to be able to service clubs and, and we get um, a lot of... Uh, contact from uh, League One, League Two, National League, Scottish Championship clubs um, who want to be involved in data. You know, I was telling the guys earlier that we had a, a contact recently from a National League club um, who are trying to build their own expected goals model, um, which is absolutely fascinating because they don't have access to the data that the Premier League and the Championship clubs do. You know, we don't have X, Y coordinates. We don't have the level of data that we can really uh, create that type of model. But the idea, it goes back to why expected goals work so well, is because it is a model that's based on something that's fundamentally understood in the game, which is creating quality chances. And so now National League clubs, uh, in this circumstance, you know, they're, they're actually trying to build a model that allows them to evaluate the performance of the team, the performance of their players, Based on the quality of chances they're creating. So, perfect. I think that's a really, a really nice way to uh, to round up part one. We're going to take a, a quick break, and we'll be back to um, to speak a bit more in broader terms about the, uh, the football industry as a whole after this short break. Welcome back to Three at the Back. So in this uh, section of the pod, we're going to just run through a few a few topics across football and the analytics world, the recruitment world, the technology world. And we're just going to take a sort of try and approach these with fresh eyes or what we've trends we've seen, perhaps what we see happening in the future. So I'm just going to run through a few different areas with both Ben and Lee. And we're going to take it from there. I'm going to start with uh, with youth development. We've now got a lot of different technology, a lot of a lot of data. Um, Clubs are set up a lot more differently than perhaps they were five, ten years ago. We spoke a lot about the backroom staff. How do you think this will influence how we look at youth development? Has it looked at how we uh, how we approach youth development? What are your thoughts on this? You know, youth development has been very much about 
you know, identifying talent early, being able to grow that through your system, being able to put structures in place that allow those players to develop, you know, primarily because you're trying to develop players for your first team. And that's been the focus. I think as technology's developed, you know, things like players wearing GPS in training and in games has allowed uh, the ability to assess data in a way that, that uh, on those players that they haven't been able to do in the past. So over the last sort of five or six years, Opta, we've collected data for clubs on their under-18s or under-21s, sometimes they're under-16s as well, and that's been going on for, for a good number of years now. So the ability to assess players um, using technology and using data is, is certainly something that's really developed. One of the big challenges is obviously how you benchmark players' performance at different age groups against where you want them to be when they become a senior player. That's not only a challenge we have in youth development, it's a challenge we have when we're looking at countries to countries and, and trying to assess the different levels of football um, between certain markets. And, and that's you know, a, a consistent challenge for the data community. Uh, and that's certainly the same thing for, for young players in, um, when assessing them through data using, using technology. I mean, you know, I always use the Marcus Rashford example because Rashford was a player that wasn't really on people's radar as, uh, from a scouting perspective in the, the couple of years before he made his first team debut. You know, he, was, he was essentially drafted into the first team because James Wilson was injured. Will King got injured, Will the, week King got injured the week before. Um, you know they got an injury crisis up front, and Rashford got got dragged in. But he wasn't when he made his first team debut. I know a lot of people in the in the football community were sort of saying, "Really, you know, you know, like he hadn't been tearing up trees for United's youth teams over the, over the number of years." Harry Kane's another great example. You know, Harry Kane wasn't smashing goals in left, right, and centre for Tottenham's uh, academy, and certainly didn't do that when he went out on loan to Millwall and Norwich. Yeah, and then suddenly something clicked with both of those players. They're now probably England's two of England's yeah. best players. And so, you know, assessing youth talent and uh, development has always been difficult. You know, because no matter what we can do with data and technology, people have struggled to assess players' development through the process anyway. So, I think you know something we've we've looked at recently and, and certainly the, what we've tried to gear some of our, our platforms and, and data to be able to do is to try and benchmark players at similar ages and now because of the depth of uh, data we have and, and certainly the historical data that we have now um, we can now better assess whether a player looks like another player at his age um, so you know a player coming into the first team you know what does Marcus Rashford look like now compared to I'm just throwing out names but you know Thierry Henry when yeah. he was 20 you know is there a similarity Someone like Wayne Rooney with that foot full of data set as well for exactly yeah. yeah so you know does our data now allow you to do that type of comparison to kind of better understand what his career trajectory might be that obviously only works when a player makes a first team debut and so being able to assess players when they're playing at 18s playing at under 21s maybe out on loan at a League One, League Two club. How can we assess player development? And I think that's a huge challenge um, for us as a technology data business to try and help clubs, um, you know, assess that in a better way and, and um, put processes in place that allow them to do that. There's a, I mean, that, that really interesting insight. Uh, I think there's on the other side of the coin when you talk about traditional scouting and, and what's going on at youth level and how the data that's that's, that's actually created there. Um, we're working with a national association, and I won't name them, but they're, um, they've had a real period of reflection over the last few years because they've not competed as they've not performed as well as they should have done. So they've looked at everything, root and branch, with a view to improvement. And we're part of this process with them from as a technology partner. And in essence, what they're now doing is all of their youth football within the youth football pyramid, even down as low as 12, 13, 14 year olds. Is being scouted within that association. So what they're doing is they're sharing information on these players with a view to getting an early heads up on the players who are emerging. Because one of the, again, one of the conundrums in scouting, one of the conundrums in football, is that players often have a bad game. You know, you have to have a process in place which looks at players across a period of time, maybe only in big games, for example. But there has to be a logic behind the process. 
and this is the, the, the journey they're embarking on and we're providing the infrastructure for them to do that and it's a again it's a fascinating project and I've no doubt that it will only move them forward as a national association in the context of being able to identify, collectively identify, emerging players quickly to fast track them for their development. Uh, no rocket science in that, it's all common sense, but it's all about good use of data, good use of information and the exchange of information. I mean, there's so many examples of in youth development of players who dominate at a certain age group and so get you know, fast track because they're physically bigger, stronger than anyone else and then have a decline. You know, I, I feel for someone like Ross Barkley at the moment because I was uh, at Everton and, and with the academy when Ross was 14 and Ross was playing under 18 football because he physically just dominated anyone else at under 16 level. You know, he could, that those kind of images of the big kid striding through and, you know, that was Ross. And... You know, he was able to play in every position on the pitch and dominate. And now, you know, he's he's come into the, into Everton. He's been in the first team for a, for a few years now, and has had peaks and troughs in his career. And you know, obviously, currently going through an injury situation, but has obviously had some issues over the last year or so. And I think that type of approach, and and certainly Everton, I don't think got this wrong at all. You know, Ross was such a talent and played so well early on. But it's probably going through some of the issues that, that players do go through. I mean, Michael Owen was a historical example of that, who was fantastic in his first few years. And then maybe because he was playing so young, maybe declined a little bit with injuries and things over, over the end of his career. Yeah, it links back to that. Do you judge a player in terms of his, his actual physical age or is it his age by his football age in terms of his minutes played? Someone like Wayne Rooney's got the minutes of a 34, 35-year-old or something like that. And um... Yeah, I think that, and that's again where... You know, sports science and, and medical data is is so important in assessing these players. And you know, Ross can probably was probably bench pressing at eighteen what most players were doing at twenty five, twenty six. So, so that's a challenge. But I think there is that. You know, Harry Kane is always a, a good example because Harry, when you watched him play at eighteen, nineteen, twenty. It was it was like the coordination sometimes wasn't quite there. That a lot of you know certainly a lot of scouting reports I read on Harry Kane and some of them I wrote myself were about his ability to trap the ball in certain situations or the, his ability to run and, and get ahead of people. That was sometimes a challenge for Harry, and and I sometimes wonder whether that was literally just his physical development. That was literally just down to what every 17, 18, 19-year-old goes through at that period in their lives. And it just happens that he was you know, taller than a lot of players. He yeah. was physically more imposing anyway. And now look at him. You know, Technically, he's fantastic. He physically can dominate. That type of development can happen for any player. And I think one of the things that you know, certainly we can't do with Optidata, we can't do necessarily to with qualitative data is assess that medical and physical side of the game. But that is one of the challenges. It's one of the reasons why traditional scouting is so difficult with youth players. Uh, and we, you know that's why things like being able to look at historical data, look at player comparisons uh, with you know the, the data that we do have is, is going to be such a, a step forward, I think, in terms of assessing youth development and youth, youth players. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see how, how those teams that are that are tracking it at under twenties, under twenty one, sorry, under under eighteen, under sixteens. Obviously, that will remain, you know, internal with them. But how that progresses and how that how that changes their processes. I'm going to move on to the next topic now. We're going to look at technology within the game and just a, a simple overview. Almost, um, what do you think? You, you know, what clubs like to be able to do that they can't currently? Um, will this, will you know, faster, quicker are the key words? But will this continue to be the case? Do we just want the same things faster and quicker, or will we see a more a more drastic change around this? I think. You know, faster, quicker is is something that you know we're always striving to do. You know, we're always trying to deliver things because you know the the industry demands it. You know, as we've mentioned in the first half, things are changing so quickly in the football business every day. The ability to get information earlier allows for decisions to be made quicker. Um, you know, certainly if you go into the Championship, League One, League Two, uh, the same in in some of the European markets where they're playing two or three games a week. The ability to turn around that information quickly. I think the way certainly that, that we'll look to develop our technology 
is around being able to provide services to scouts and to analysts that they can use no matter where they are. Uh, I was having a, a really interesting conversation with a scout uh, this week about <clears throat> some of the challenges that they have when they're scouting in Europe. You know, they're they're travelling all around uh, a country. They may go and watch six or seven games in a weekend between Friday and Monday. That means changing hotels. This scout was saying that he, he probably covered more than a thousand miles in a weekend going from one part of the country to another to catch different games see two games in a day maybe see a youth game in the morning as well that means that they still have to write the scout report at some point they still have to be able to assess things a lot of scouts now with the, with the services that are available will watch a game they'll write some notes but then they'll go back and they'll watch the video back again and they'll go to certain points in the game that they've highlighted as something they want to look at look at again and I think being able to service those guys in a better way when they're in a stadium, when they're on a train and they don't have Wi-Fi or they're on a plane and they're moving between games, that they're able to write their scouting reports during the game or they're able to at least have a platform that allows them to get that information back to the club quicker. And I think that's something that just is, an, is a necessity in the modern game where these guys are out on the road all the time how do you get that information back to the club for it to be assessed, for you to be able to turn that back into something that you know allows you to go and watch a watch a player again uh, very quickly the next weekend? Um, you know it might require you you've seen a player you need to get the manager out to come and see him. You know you might be in December you've seen a player that you think we really need to see again. You need to get the manager out to see him. That's got to happen really quickly around the transfer window. So I think that you're absolutely right. I think the the speed of things, but also the capability of using technology in multiple environments, um, you know, that could be the same for, for training environments and for analysis, being able to use tools where you can literally take them anywhere. I think, I think it's really interesting. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, first of all, there's lots of technologies out there that aren't proven yet and they're making their way in the industry and it'll be interesting to see how those technologies evolve. Um, you know, I think, I think the, Devil's advocate, you know, sometimes technology for technology's sake isn't always a good thing. I mean, we tried something years and years ago with, with, with digital pens. So we were intending to give scouts a pen that digitally would transfer what they wrote on paper straight onto the screen uh, when they got back home or back into the office or whatever. And it, it never took off. And, and you know, But you've got to try these things. Yeah. You've got to be innovative. And there's lots of those out there. And that's really interesting. I guess another thing to, to, to throw into this subject, and I don't know the answer to this, but one of the... An elephant in the room, I think, of scouting, both objectively and subjectively, is context. The data and the scouting report you get watching a team that's 1-0 up is completely different from what you might get when they're 1-0 down because the whole shape and dynamic of the game is different. And that, that context, as I say, I don't know the answer to this, and maybe this is something for the listeners, You know, the contextual challenges are quite interesting in football, given it's such a, a dynamic game. Game state's been a huge one, I think. Someone who, um, within the sort of the analytics world, has done really well on it. I think Gary Gillard, his, his most recent Opta Pro Forum presentation, acknowledged that when he looked at crossing and came with some really interesting conclusions because data perhaps uh, doesn't do crossing any favours. But he looked at it in that depth, in that game state situation, and sort of was able to address that properly. So I agree with that entirely. Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, certainly the people at Opta Pro, but also in the, the general industry, uh, have heard a lot about sort of making data tactically relevant. Um, making the technology that we have being able to apply that to a coaching situation or a tactical situation and you know that's something that we still need to do better at you know we still need to be able to provide not only data but whether it's models or metrics or technology platforms that allow coaches and players to actually use that information to affect the game we've uh, Sam Gregory recently wrote a blog that we released, I think, yesterday around our sequences and possessions model that we've recently released, uh, talking about the impact that players have in the build-up to goals and the build-up to shots and, and uh, creating better chances. And maybe they're not the players that are creating the chance directly. They're not applying the assist, but actually they're the guy who had the fifth or sixth pass before that but consistently was involved in play now that is something that scouts are looking at every single game the, the way scouts watch a game is completely different to the way a fan watches the game the majority of the time scouts aren't watching the ball 
and they're watching the players that are influencing the game through their movement, through their subtle touches, through their involvement in the fifth or sixth or seventh pass preceding a chance being created. And I think if we can use data to better quantify that, then we'll be supporting uh, scouts and recruitment processes, but also from an analytics perspective within uh, performance analysis you know, to try and improve their processes. So I think both the contextual um, side of, of things that Lee mentioned and then also the kind of tactical side, I think is something that technology and data, we need to almost go back to where the game started, you know, not get too ahead of trying to revolutionize the game in a way that becomes completely technology required um, or reliant, sorry, but we need to go back to where the game started, which is 11 people on the pitch trying to achieve something from a tactical perspective or from a strategy perspective. And we need to remember that that's what the game's about. And I think we can do a much better job with data in trying to achieve that. Excellent. And I'm going to move on to the next topic now. It's something we touched on earlier, and it's around that spectrum of clubs that are perhaps um, gone traditionally or gone down a analytic route or merged the two. We talk about the bringing these these two sets together as if they're completely alien, which which you know they're not. They work side by side. They're integrated. But how do you see it working in five years? How do you see these these two different approaches coming together? Do you see them people wise, club processes wise? How do you see that looking in five years? I think, and I think this is a positive thing. I think there there will obviously be evolution in every aspect of, of the game, in every aspect of the recruitment process. But I think the clubs will still be different. I don't think there will be any one fast, hard, sharp rule to follow. And that's a great thing about football. It, there will be differences of opinion. There will be different budgets, different processes, different structures. Clubs will be at different points on that curve. So, so yes, there'll be evolution, but they'll all be different still. And there'll be, there'll be you know, some will be more analytical than others, some will be less. Some will become analytical, they may become a bit more traditional. Some will, some will be the opposite. You know, the whole thing will evolve for sure. Without doubt, and maybe from a from a pure technology point of view, and, and you know Ben's right saying that you know let's not get carried away with the technology. It is actually a simple game; it can be overcomplicated. But I think in some ways it's two steps forward, one step back. Then two steps forward, one step back in terms of how that evolution works. But again, coming back to something else that we mentioned earlier on, that cycle of reinvention is the thing that gets in the way of so much of this. There are so many good things I've seen happen in clubs in terms of structure, in terms of process, in terms of very good football scouts, very good football analysts, then all of a sudden the shutters have come down because the head coach, the manager's gone, it's changed, and they're about to start again. So, you know, we must temper this thinking about evolution, knowing that football being football is it will be stop-start. And I think we've talked in the past about it also being a generational thing, um, in that the, the managers and coaches of the next 10 years will have been players who have experienced technology and who've used it as part of their analysis processes to, to analyze their own performance. They'll have been around, they'll have worn GPS tracking monitors, they'll have been looking at tracking data um, after every game. So the, the generational side of it is that, that people are more technology aware now um, than they were 10, 15 years ago, and that will happen as, the, as people change within the game. So I can only see you know, the, the technology side growing uh, in its in people's awareness of it, and we see that in the game every day with introduction of goal line technology and, and those types of things becoming more uh, aware in the public eye certainly. Um, so I think certainly the the ability for the next generation of managers, coaches, um, to influence the way technology is used in their everyday environment um, will only develop. Perfect. Hang on. We're going to move on to our, our final topic for today's podcast is, is data culture, something again we've discussed earlier. We know that some leagues, some competitions, some teams are more advanced in their use of data and how that works. Do you expect other areas, other leagues to follow the same pattern that perhaps we've seen in the UK, in the USA, in Germany? Or do you think they'll take their own unique routes and perhaps it'll be a different journey altogether? I think as Lee said about clubs, that every club is different, every culture is different as well. So I think you know, we can't expect that every country will suddenly become as data hungry as somewhere like the US is. Um, you know, data is so fundamental to every part of uh, every one of their sports uh, that, you know, soccer is only 
kind of developed in that aspect and, and has probably in some cases exceeded some of their sports in the way that they've used data, certainly from a fan perspective in the way you engage with the game. That's not going to be the same in every other culture. But it's, you know, when we talk about the data culture, it, it can be so extreme sometimes in, in the MLS, in, in the Premier League, in, in the Bundesliga, in, in the way that clubs use data uh, and maybe not so much in other areas. But there are some really interesting clubs in different countries that people may not know about who are doing some some really innovative work uh, with data with technology that people just don't know about i think it's it's not that it doesn't exist in some countries it's just that it maybe is limited to certain clubs rather than the normal stuff. exactly and and maybe it, it also comes to a resource part as well you know not every um, league is as rich as the premier league and, and can afford to spend that type of money on uh, the, the type of technology we're talking about. So it, it's not necessarily that they don't want to or that they, they're not capable of doing it. That's certainly not the case. Um, it may just come down to resources. But also the, the football cultures are different in terms of the way they approach the game. We know that there's a, a very Barcelona, Spanish way of doing things at times um, in the way that the, the national team play, in the way that Barcelona have played. It's the same in Dutch football. You know, when you talk about Dutch football, you sort of have a, a vision of what the game looks yeah. like. And so maybe it's certain styles of play. We Again, going back to that tactical relevancy, maybe we can't describe the game in a way that really supports that way of playing at the moment. And until we can, things like aggressive pressing, we can't really quantify that as, as well as we'd want to at the moment. So maybe until we can get to the point from a technology perspective where it can be applied in a way that coaches understand when they're trying to play those philosophies, you know, maybe that that we need to catch up. It's not that that they do. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really really interesting point and a, a really valid point, and I think that's a really nice way to to end this episode of the podcast. Ben, thank you very much for for your time and for joining us. Always a pleasure. Lee, excellent debut. Thank you very much. Look forward to the book. <laughs> You're welcome. You'll be first to get a copy. Oh, excellent! Can't wait. And thank you very much for listening. Oh, 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 oh,